Today, we continue our Advent sermon series, How We Begin, looking at how each of the four gospel writers begins the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we heard the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, which is a long list of names, a genealogy that connects Jesus all the way back to both Abraham and King David, but with some surprising people included. Last week, we heard the beginning of Mark's gospel, and Mark skips over Jesus' past, his birth, his childhood, and goes straight to John the Baptist out in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Today, we turn to the gospel of Luke. Luke is writing for a mixed audience of both Jews and Gentile, and he begins with the story of a miraculous birth. Not the birth of Jesus, but of his cousin John, who will prepare the people for Jesus' coming. Hear now this reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once, when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know that this is so? For I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, This is what the Lord has done for me. 
when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One summer when I was in college, my extended family spent a week at the beach together. To celebrate my grandmother's birthday, my mother and my aunt decided to make a special dinner, the centerpiece of which was deviled crab, made using my great-grandmother's recipe written out in her own hand. I didn't really understand at the time what all the fuss was about, but I remember walking into the kitchen at the moment when my mother called my aunt over to take the first taste. My aunt took a bite of the crab and promptly burst into tears. It tastes just like grandmom's, she said. Takes me right back to her kitchen. The taste of a loved one's special dish, the smell of a relative's signature perfume or aftershave, the sound of a particular piece of music, All these and more have a way of transporting us to the past, reminding us that we have come from somewhere and from someone. Luke begins his story by offering his Jewish readers a recipe from the past, one that is meant to jog both their memory and evoke emotion. For his Gentile readers, Luke's beginning serves as a teaching tool. This history is now their history. They should learn it and remember it. Luke begins by contrasting King Herod, known for his brutality and violence, with the priest Zechariah, whose very name means God remembers, and who faithfully fulfills his duties in the temple. Now, the temple itself is a place that evokes memory and emotion. Jews and Gentiles alike know the temple is located in Jerusalem, the city of David. And it's where God's people go to encounter and worship God. When we follow Zechariah into the temple's inner sanctum, we witness his vision, which is not unlike temple visions in the Old Testament. There is an angel And we are meant to remember that God has sent angels before to Abraham and Sarah, among others, to announce their long-awaited pregnancy. Likewise, the angel announces to Zechariah that he and Elizabeth, who are way past childbearing years, will finally have a son. It is one of God's favorite plot lines, where we mortals see only an ending. God sees a new beginning, a future with hope. This past week, the plinth that held the Robert E. Lee statue on Monument Avenue began to be taken away stone by stone. It's a painstaking process that some see as a win and others as a loss. But I wonder what possibilities might open up to us if we see this change not as win or lose, but as part of a larger narrative, one in which God is working through the past, in the present, for our future. 
Luke is convinced that with the birth of Jesus, God is doing a new thing. But Luke's beginning makes clear that this new thing is not separate from who God has always been and what God has always done. This is the God who created heaven and earth, who gets involved with God's people, who is deeply concerned about the poor and oppressed, who brings comfort and hope to situations that look hopeless and helpless, who brings new life from what looks to all the world like death. And there is no question that for Luke's first readers who were situated in the second half of the first century, the future looked incredibly bleak. Radical Jews had revolted against their Roman oppressors, and Jerusalem was a city under siege. Conditions were bad. People were divided over how to deal with the occupying force. Should they support insurgent leaders to fight for their land? Or should they submit to Rome to maintain at least the illusion of security? Everyone was anxious caught between resentment of heavy-handed soldiers and fear of extremist guerrillas. Many small villages had populations that were mixed, both Jews and Gentiles, and tensions ran high. Neighbors were afraid of one another. Families were divided. But in the midst of all this conflict and uncertainty, there was a small group that refused to choose sides. These were the followers of a Galilean rabbi named Jesus, who had been crucified for treason decades before. These Jesus followers claimed that his crucifixion was not just another unjust execution by the state, but in fact, good news a sign that God had intervened to secure a future of liberation and justice, hope, joy, and peace for all people. For his readers who were grappling with all of this, Luke begins by rooting his story in the people and events of the present as well as the people and events from the past with King Herod and the priest Zechariah and the angel Gabriel and Elizabeth, a descendant of Aaron, who will bear a child with the spirit of Elijah to announce the coming of the one who will save us all. Luke is saying, sit up and pay attention. The God of your ancestors is doing a new thing. God is intervening in this present moment to secure a future of liberation and justice, hope, joy, and peace for us all. And yet with all the drama and hope with which Luke begins, I wouldn't be surprised if his first readers responded with the same doubt as Zechariah, who said to the angel, how will I know this is true? I wouldn't be surprised if most of us respond that way. Not just to this story, but to this whole claim of the incarnation. Do we really believe God is doing anything new at Christmas? 
Do we really believe this birth we celebrate changed the world when we look around and see the same problems now that were with us 50 years ago and 100 years ago and 2,000 years ago? Do we believe there will be a time when divisions will cease and the world will know liberation and justice, hope, joy, and peace? If we're honest, it doesn't look likely. And most days, we feel as mute as Zechariah. I don't know about you, but when I look at our world, when I see the future our children are poised to inherit, I often find myself at a loss for words. The noise all around us, the political polarization, the fighting among friends and family, the violence and injustice, the fear and anxiety, it all just seems too oppressive, too toxic too entrenched to be overcome. And yet, based on his beginning, I suspect Luke's advice for us in moments such as this, when we're just not sure we can trust this gospel story, Luke's advice would be that these are the very moments God is at work creating something new. Because the gospel claim is that God is with us, not just in the miraculous moments, but even especially in the valley of the shadow of death, in the places of conflict and suffering. So I suspect when we have decided the future looks bleak and hopeless, Luke's advice would be to remember the past. Remember the people who showed compassion in the worst situations we can imagine, who sacrificed their own safety and security to provide for others, who kept working for a better future, even one they would not get to see. Much has been shared these past couple of weeks about Bob Dole, whose own sacrifice in the Second World War changed the trajectory of his life. He had hoped to come back from the war and be an athlete or a doctor, but an injury on the battlefield nearly took his life and took him several years to recover from and still left him partially paralyzed. So he dedicated his life to public service first in the House and then in the Senate. In a farewell letter to his daughter Robin, Dole made a final request of her to remember the past in order to secure the future for Dole's grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. In the letter he wrote, Since it was dedicated in 2004, it has been my honor to go as often as I could to the World War II Memorial here in Washington, D.C., to welcome and thank the World War II veterans and all veterans. Since I won't be making that visit anymore, I hope that you will, and that you will ask your children and grandchildren to visit veterans' memorials across America and to never forget the sacrifice made, not just by my generation, but by all those who wear the uniform of our country. He concluded, My final words are the exact ones that Dwight Eisenhower used nearly seven decades ago. I believe 
in the future of the United States of America. When Luke sat down to write his gospel, he did so with a firm belief in the future. Not the future of a particular people or country, but God's future, which is the future of humanity itself. The future Luke imagines is one revealed by God's decision to enter our world as an infant born to a particular family at a particular time in a particular place. But that future is grounded in the history of God's people, which is a history of miracles and new beginnings, of liberation and justice, of hope, joy, and peace. I don't know exactly what present struggle makes you wonder whether the good news is relevant in your life. Maybe it is a broken relationship, or the state of our democracy, or our planet, or a situation at home, or at work. Maybe you can't escape the past or imagine a better future. Whatever it is that makes you wonder how any of this good news can be true, May you remember that Zechariah's story does not end with him unable to speak. When Elizabeth gives birth to their son, Zechariah regains his voice, and this is what he says. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Put another way, as the saying goes, everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it is not yet the end. The gospel story is not a single, uninterrupted, predictable narrative. It is a story of past, present, and future, of creation from nothing, of hope in the face of despair, of new life from death. It is a story that has been unfolding since the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep, a story that will continue to unfold until each one of us recognizes and accepts our part in this story, which was, is, and always will be a story of God's unending love. Amen.